0: The uh, part of the um, Noble Eightfold Path, which we haven't discussed yet, is the part of Concentration, Samadhi. The word Samadhi is the um, word for Concentration, and Samatha is the word for Tranquility Meditation. That's the way we use them anyway, that's the way we translate them. And um, this this part of the Noble Eightfold Path consists of three parts again. Right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Exactly in that order. First comes the effort, then comes the mindfulness, and then comes the concentration. Right effort is a balancing act that each person has to do for him or herself. It is impossible to make hard and fast rules for different people who have different physical strength, different past experiences, a different mental strength, and different emotional strength. we can take it for granted that each of us could do just a little more. How much more is debatable? But what is quite sure is that if we make a certain effort, like we do here, for instance, with meditation and uh, calm and insight and if we just stretch that effort a tiny little bit more, it is like stretching one's muscles. They can then be stretched again just a little more. We are all of us prone to give in too easily to bodily discomforts and to habitual thinking patterns which are again and again challenged in the Buddhist uh, teaching. And they are so often challenged in a way which we may not find very comfortable or very reassuring. And because of that, we like to come back to our old patterns instead of stretching the effort. I'm quite convinced that we could stretch it just a little more every one of us however we must remember that it is not a matter of blaming oneself for anything that one hasn't done and it's also not a matter of and achievement syndrome. Both of those create stress in the mind, which is counterproductive. Effort is an action in itself. That it will produce some results is in the nature of cause and effect, which pervades the universe. But if we only look for the effect, we will always neglect the cause. (coughs) It's the same in meditation. If we're looking desperately for the effect, namely for the pleasant, delightful feeling, or the tranquility, and don't look at the cause, namely the concentration, we're never going to get it. Our whole effort Goes to the cause. Here, with right effort, it is the effort as such which we pay attention to, whatever the results that will be in the course of the progressive action we take. So it is essential that we look at effort as something which is worthwhile doing for itself, not for the results it yields. Achievement syndromes, the uh, trying to get something for the effort, creates um, dukkha because it is wanting to get, it's a craving, it's wanting to get something. So obviously it will have as result so the um, effort which is connected to "I must do this now," is connected very often to self-hate and therefore also brings a strain to the mind, which again, does not help us in any way. Sometimes people have headaches when they meditate. Well, obviously that's counterproductive. On the contrary, if we do have a headache, it should go away in the meditation and not come. The, um, this idea of I must do something is not the right way to approach it. We can use our willpower to make a determination and then try to stay with that determination which we have made like a promise to ourselves but it is only connected to our own ideas and our own uh, actions there's nobody that's forcing us or pushing us there's nobody that is going to hit us or dislike us it is a self motivation. It's the only one that works because self motivation is also connected to self discipline, and self discipline is the um, hub around which practice revolves. Because without it, we would try and take it easy under all circumstances. Now self-discipline does not necessarily only concern physical. It concerns very much our mental attitude. Particularly in meditation the discipline of the mind not to allow any kind of thinking but to again and again bring it back to the meditation subject to the concentrated state which is an enormous discipline that we are imposing on the mind and sometimes if there is not only the Achievement Syndrome but also the blame of not being able to do it, the mind refuses. Quite rightly so, because it is being put into an untenable uh, situation. It's trying... it's we're trying to do, make it do something which it isn't very proficient at yet, and at the same time, while it isn't proficient, we're also blaming. It's as if we were, to blame a small child for not being able to walk very well yet. It just hasn't done it yet. So it wobbles around. And blaming the child isn't going to help it to walk very well, or better than it did before. So as we put the mind into such an untenable situation, it refuses. It gives up and says, well, all right then, if yes, I can't do I can't do anything, all right then. So we should be very protective of our mind. And there's nobody else that can protect it except we ourselves. We need to be alert to the pitfalls of negative thinking. Blame is a negative thinking. Resentment. Also worry. Worry trying to get anywhere with the effort may be considered not to be negative, but it has um, greed in it, the craving aspect. So all of that um, is uh, detrimental to the meditation as such. Effort for effort's sake, not for the result because also there is a very interesting aspect to effort that if one is trying to make just a little more effort than one has before one gets a feel of a feeling of satisfaction and that satisfaction in itself if the effort is not considered to have to bring results but just as such as effort <coughs> that satisfaction enables us make more effort however effort has another quality which has to go along with it and that's steady it has to be steady and this is what I was saying about the 10 day courses earlier that people do make quite a bit of effort in 10 day courses and then the whole thing collapses again it's much better to keep on plodding along little by little and not to stop at all and not make such a concentrated effort if it leads to the complete giving up of effort otherwise of course concentrated effort for a short time is a desirable thing to do but we need to watch our mind so that it doesn't get into what I sometimes like to call a short circuit we're trying to concentrate we're not able to so we're blaming ourselves for not doing it for doing it wrong and uh, trying to do something else in the end the mind just doesn't want to do anything anymore it's as if a short circuit has arisen where all the fuses are being blown and uh, the mind just keeps on telling stories at that time the best thing to do is to relax and give the mind its um, its way just as if you had a um, little dog on the leash and it hasn't learned to follow yet at heel and it's uh, yelping and making a lot of uh, noise because you're pulling it give it its uh uh, give it its view and just let the leash go for a moment you might have to let the leash go for even for 10 minutes or more it doesn't matter the mind when it objects to concentration you've been um, while making effort putting in there also a negative aspect of the mind either blame, resentment, worry, fear or even the greed of achieving. The remedy is always effort for effort's sake. Right effort is um, designated in its terminology as the four supreme efforts which I think most of you or all of you have heard before I'll just repeat them briefly I think we have mentioned them here also not to let an unwholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen not to let an unwholesome thought continue which has already arisen to make a wholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen to make a wholesome thought continue which has already arisen in other words not to allow the negativity to stop them before they actually form if the mindfulness is strong enough and if they have formed to substitute with the wholesome with the positive and if there is already wholesome thinking to continue that which very much goes back to the understanding that we gain through our labeling in the meditation that we don't have to believe what the mind says it's just very often as we all know idle chatter we don't have to believe everything that goes on in the mind particularly when it's negative now with the negativities in the mind there's a very interesting human aspect to that which all of us have experienced and unfortunately will experience again we are beset with the three roots of evil we also have the three roots of good but we have the three roots of evil delusion, which is its underlying cause from which hate and greed arise now, both of those hate and greed want outlets and if there's nothing to be greedy about if there's nothing that we would like to get then at least we could find something that we'd like to resist. That's how our negativities arise in the mind. Because we want an outlet. That's why we also sometimes, very foolishly, (coughs) pick one particular person whom we dislike utterly. nothing good about that person. That person is... and utterly finished as far as we're concerned. So we can at least channel our outlet of, uh, of hate. We don't have to spread it so much. We can channel it in one direction.
1: <laughs>
0: it's probably uh, uh, more favorable to the rest of mankind if we do that, but we should recognize it for what it is. It doesn't have any a basis in truthful or reality or truthfulness or reality. It is an outlet for us, that's all. And somebody asked me just recently, I don't remember who it was, why people like horror movies. Well that's the reason. That's exactly the reason. We can channel our our negativities onto something which is happening on the screen. So we don't have to dislike our neighbor so much at that time. Of course, when we turn the screen off, who knows? <laughs> it's very helpful to recognize it as such. When we recognize that our negativities as such, they will be less important, they will have less of an impact on us, <coughs> we'll be more able to be protective of our mind state.
2: <coughs> <coughs>
0: <coughs> Most of the time, they do. However, we have mind states that do not have a necessarily have a subject. We can we call them moods now let's say you get into a negative mood right depressive angry God knows what it is n- very natural to now look for something that must have caused that and usually it's a person nearest physically nearest because we don't have to look so far laughter or if somebody has just done something that we know about, then we pick that one. So we do not recognize usually the mind state as a mind state, but we are looking for the outside trigger. And uh, the outside trigger may very well have been the uh, cause, but it's not the, um, the underlying cause. It's only the external cause. It has nothing to do with what's really happening. The mind state is is arising because it's in there. If it wasn't there, it wouldn't be able to arise. So once we have found the outside trigger, again we have a focus for that mind state. If somebody has a is depressed, they they try to find out why and find something else to outside of themselves, anger, whatever it is. But they could be, they, and they are, just mind states which don't even, very often don't even need an outside trigger. They, they can be triggered by the fact that we have habitually allowed them to arise. So habitually they keep on arising and keep on arising. And as they keep on arising, we may actually do another thing. We may. Continually blame a trigger which happened years ago and has absolutely nothing to do with the mindset which has arisen now, but because we need to find something which has the which we could blame, we take this very old thing and keep on blaming all the negative mindsets on that. <laughs> Well, it's um. You see, the Buddha said the whole of the universe, O oh, monks, lies in this mind and body. So once you know your own mind and body, it's obvious that everybody's mind and body is like that. And uh, therefore, the whole investigation centres around oneself, and then the result is that everything else becomes quite clear and open to one, uh, to the mind that has seen the internal aspect. So when we have effort for effort's sake, none of these negativities will arise because we will be contented about the fact that we have made effort. And stretching the effort just a little further will be very also helpful for our contentment. Now these supreme efforts, which are these four mental states, are called supreme because they are so supremely beneficial and in the beginning of practice people find them supremely difficult. But if that is the habitual effort and that's what it should be, an habitual effort, it becomes actually it's no longer anything that creates a great deal of uh, determination necessary determination it just happens because oneself has seen the benefits of the positivity in the mind the benefits are of course to oneself but others also benefit. I have said this before I'll repeat it that our mental states affect our environment it's a truism which we often forget because we think that our thoughts are private and secret they're nothing of the kind they're neither private nor secret First of all, we don't own them. And of course, we think we own them, we will keep them, we can keep them locked up, but we can't. And that doesn't mean that other people's ha- people have to be mind readers. Nothing of the sort. Maybe some people are, some are, might be, it doesn't have anything to do with it. It means that we are, through our mental states, emanating a certain kind of being the mental states emanate from us. And as they emanate from us, we become aware of what we are pleased to call the vibes. Well, that's exactly what it is. It's a totally correct statement. Even though it sounds new age and uh, uh, somewhat um, uh, crude, it is exactly what we're experiencing. So that emanation from us emanates from mind-states. And it's very difficult to fool another person just by saying the right things. In fact, one would assume that it's impossible. But it isn't so. It is possible, but very rarely. Some people are very convincing in what they say. But most of us, ordinary people, the mind state which emanates from the being is far more convincing than anything else and as we with negativities have of course negative emanations we pollute our environment with them and as we pollute our environment which are again other mental states the natural environment suffers from that because the negativities which are either hate or greed, will necessarily induce us to do the wrong thing with our natural environment. People are becoming more and more aware of the pollution of the natural environment and that something has to be done. Well, maybe one day they'll also become aware of the pollution of their own internal environment. And if that happens, we have, of course, maybe a globe full of meditators but it's too much to hope for sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, right kind of effort the word right is in my that it never changes from all the eight um, of all the eight steps effort is vayama summer vayama right effort is our main spring without it nothing happens at all I mean we wouldn't even be here we wouldn't sit here, we wouldn't do anything. So it's our mainspring. Now, with that, we also have one other consideration, and that is right effort in which direction. And that is something that's very often difficult and confusing. I think we might be able to take a guideline from clear comprehension the Buddha's explanation of mindfulness not in this particular sutta but in many others is often co-joined with clear comprehension sati is mindfulness and sampanyanya is clear comprehension and clear comprehension has four points and we might take our cue from those four points we need to investigate whether when if we want to say or do something particularly probably action but also speech what is the purpose of it? what purpose do I have in mind? the second step to consider then is in order to fulfill my purpose which I have now looked at and consider to be worthwhile purpose in order to fulfill it is that what I have in mind to say or do the most skillful means? or are there more skillful means available? having ascertained that that's what I have in mind to say or do are the most skillful means comes the third consideration is the purpose and are the means within the Dhamma within the teaching of the Buddha if I now am clear and sure that all three are positive purpose is a good one the means are skillful and both are within the Dhamma, then we go ahead and having either said or done what we had in mind, after finishing with it, we make a fourth investigation. Did I actually accomplish my purpose? And if not, why not? So it could either have been a lack of skillful means, it could have been an outer impediment which may have karmic causes which are unknown to oneself it could have been a lack of Dhamma content or it could have been a selfish purpose there are many possibilities but this kind of uh, consideration within those four points may help us to realize where the right effort is applicable. Now obviously it's applicable for meditation, there's no question about it. Applicable for understanding the Dhamma, trying to remember the um, teaching. All those are, there's no question about these. But we have other efforts in our lives which are quite time-consuming and energy-consuming. So there we also need to investigate because we cannot separate the Dhamma practice from our life. Eventually our life has to be Dhamma and Dhamma has to be our life. So there's no separation possible. It is this mind and body that is practicing and it is this mind of which we only have that which is available to us which is becoming enlightened. So no separation is possible. So to exercise this um, consideration where the right effort needs to be mostly expended, is a very worthwhile thing. We are all limited in time and we're all limited in energy. And those two are needed for the effort. We are not aware of the fact that we are constantly expending, expending some energy and some effort. Even in the most innocuous actions, such as getting up, getting dressed, um, eating, excreting, um, thinking, all of that is effort. And. Because all of it is effort, we have an option where to use our efforts to the greatest benefit for ourselves and others. These choices are important. And very often, one comes to a certain crossroads in one's life. There are certain crossroads that we all come to where we have to make a new decision. One has been going along merrily doing the same thing for so many years, and then all of a sudden it doesn't look as if that is the right thing to do anymore. And then one has great uh, uh, conscience searching. Well, if we use these four criteria, we have help in that searching for the right effort right effort will always make good karma and therefore we will have immediate results of a feeling of buoyancy and contentment a feeling of having done the right thing brings that with it. If we use effort in a non-productive way for instance talking is effort and can be very tiring. And if it's non-productive talking non-dhamma talking we will not feel satisfied and contented at the end vice versa, we will feel contented and satisfied having used the effort for Dhamma we can check that out ourselves, it's very easy to notice most people even notice it without even being um, drawn, without it being drawn to their attention any questions on effort? alright we'll go to the next one we don't have to say a thing about the next one it's called right mindfulness we've been talking about that for over a week now haven't we and the one thing one might say about it is that it never fails to appear in the Buddha's teaching it turns up everywhere the Buddha compared right mindfulness or mindfulness like fault in the curry In other words, curry is tasteless without salt. Life without mindfulness is tasteless. If one doesn't have mindfulness, at least internally to oneself, one remains a spectator and not a participant. Because one isn't really with it. One's always standing at the edge. Mindfulness makes it possible to recognize one's participation in feeling and um, action so that we have also the possibility of course of choice now the last one right concentration samasamadhi, never fails to be explained as the jhana in all commentaries, in all suttas it is quite amazing to imagine that anyone who is concerned with the Buddha's teachings and knows that the Noble Eightfold Path is a pivot around which practice uh, revolves should ever think that Samasamadhi right concentration has any other meaning it's constantly repeated as such as the concentration is one thing but right concentration means the meditative absorption there's no other way to explain the um, noble eightfold path if also the fourth truth, sucha, and under such to be found, in the Pali dictionary. What now, O monks, is right concentration? If the disciple is detached from sensual objects, detached from unwholesome things, and enters into the first absorption second absorption third absorption fourth absorption and so forth these are the eight steps from the Noble Eightfold Path I'll read you what it says about effort, effort what now amongst this right effort if the disciple rouses his will to avoid To avoid the arising of evil demeritorious things that have not yet arisen if he arouses his will to overcome the evil demeritorious things that have already arisen, if he arouses his will to produce meritorious things that have not yet arisen, if he arouses his will to maintain the meritorious things that have already arisen and not to let them disappear but to bring them to growth to maturity and to the full perfection of development, he thus makes efforts, fills up his energy, exerts his mind, and strives. The word "things" um, in, is, of course, uh, thought. I mean, what else is there to to um, arouse? One can't arouse things. One would have to be an, a magician to arouse things. And these are called the padanas. The padanas are the supreme efforts. So. Um, what I'm reading to you is the the Buddhist dictionary and it's not in the Sutta itself the Sutta itself just says the Four Noble Truths and you're supposed to know what the Four Noble Truths are the Noble Eightfold path. but in the Buddhist dictionary these things are um, in that manner explained the um, right concentration as the jhanas in this case The four, the first four. I'll start talking about them a little, but there will be all these other suttas which uh, are also uh, concerned with them. The first four, one, two, three, four, are called the rupa jhanas. The word rupa is uh, body or corporality, matter, things. And the next four are called the arupa jhanas. Now often the Buddha only talks about the first four because the next four are extensions of the fourth one. However, sometimes he only talks about the higher four because the first four were already dealt with in earlier sutta. The first four are called rupajanas, fine material absorptions, we, call, we translate in English. Because the states which are uh, created through that concentration are states which are familiar to us in our ordinary way of life except quantitatively and qualitatively much greater in the jhanas. Now the first one, as you all know, because I have often talked about it, is a physical sensation of great delight. It's very delightful, very often called rapture. It's a very delightful physical sensation. Now, we have all experienced delightful physical sensations. With the difference that the delightful physical sensations which are available to us in ordinary life need an external condition this one only needs an internal condition namely concentration and because of the difference between having to depend upon external condition and internal condition we become independent of the world and this is a sentence the Buddha uses over and over again when he talks about the meditative state now obviously we won't become independent of the world continuously until we have gained access to a different perspective about ourselves some reducing of the ego consciousness however we are independent of the world while we are meditating And that independence from outer conditions brings us, without fail, the understanding that outer conditions never contain the possibility of fulfilling our desires. The inner condition contains that possibility to a greater extent but even not yet to its fullest. Because it too is impermanent. And that's why I've been urging you, all of you, that when you do get to any of the states, and as they disappear, to make sure that you look at their impermanence. No matter how delightful, it disappears. Whatever has arisen must vanish. And as we see that vanishing and have been able to practice continually with the uh, right concentration, with the absorption, our mind will automatically veer to the conclusion that there must be something more, something that has no condition, neither inner nor outer, and therefore does not vanish again. Everything that has a condition must vanish because the condition vanishes. What is the condition that vanishes? The concentration in this case. So because that too vanishes, even the most delightful state of meditation cannot be fully satisfied. Only satisfying to the extent while we're concentrated, However, far more satisfying than having to rely on external conditions. At least we have some jurisdiction over the internal condition. We can at least learn to concentrate. We can make sufficient effort to concentrate uh, well and do it every day. We have some uh, control over this, over the concentration factors over the outer conditions we have no control we try to buy them with money they are the least satisfying we try to arouse them through thinking they can't stay, they disappear very quickly we um, try to arouse them through sense contact over which we have very little control because it isn't always pleasant what we contact and so our search for the pleasantness continues and takes up time and energy whereas all we would have to do is go inside and find that what we try to buy out there free of charge a great advantage when Samadhi has arisen right concentration but it must be understood and I will repeat this now that again we must know and we will know that we haven't come to the end of the quest we have come to a very important stepping stone now the first four as I said called Rupa Jhanas fine material absorptions have their counterparts in our ordinary worldly experience the first one with the delightful sensation which we know in other forms and the second one with joy which arises out of the delightful sensation now the joy is something that we are familiar with we're familiar with joy Caused by something which happens to us. Here, we don't have to wait for anything to happen to us. We make it happen. Much more satisfying, of course. Also, if we become proficient meditators, we make it last as long as we wish. Now, goes by the name of contentment which describes it better than many of its other names. And we know that too. But we are looking for it in many different places. Sometimes we look for it through other people who are just as discontented as we are. So when we find it within, we have found a jewel beyond price it is the difference between the search which is in in the world and is always connected with dissatisfaction because the desire has to arise again and again because of sense contacts being so impermanent and when desire arises, dukkha arises with it whereas here we are master of the situation when we become proficient at the uh, state of concentration now the fourth jhana is a very peculiar um, state of mind even though it's called the fine, immaterial, uh, sorry, fine material absorption and therefore belongs to the rupa jhanas it is a state of deep peace and utter equanimity which has a depth where sounds no longer intrude. And we cannot rightly say that we know such a state in our ordinary living because when we are asleep, we don't have the mindfulness to be aware of that peaceful state. So we actually have nothing to compare this with. And because we have nothing to compare it with, it's much harder to get at. The first three are, did I say child's play? Maybe not, huh? (laughs) The fourth one is difficult. The fourth one has another inbred difficulty, namely the fact But in order to become that peaceful, so that there is a total absorption in itself, the mind absorbs in itself, the ego consciousness, which is still present in the first three, has to almost totally disappear. The first three have the ego consciousness through the observer. The observer knows Aha, huh very pleasant Observer knows what's going on May not chatter like that May not say very pleasant But knows In the fourth one That knowing is reduced To its last minute point So that the ego consciousness Is also reduced to its last minute point While it happens Believe me, it comes right back When the meditation is finished and says, gee, that was a nice meditation. Yeah, I can do that really well now, huh? So it's right back where we started from. However, we may gain an insight which is very, very um, important and tells us that the less ego consciousness we have, the more peacefulness we have because we've just experienced that. We don't have to believe anybody. We can say so from our own experience. And that is, of course, an incentive to work towards the reduction of ego consciousness till the point when it may actually disappear one day because we have recognized that peacefulness. So the fourth one is a difficult um, step to take because of the fact that the ego consciousness is, is desperately set against it. It's trying its all its might not to let us enter into it. By even when we already have the ability to go into it, we come right out of it again. Because the ego consciousness would like to be present. And at that time, it is hardly present. To the point where we don't notice that it's present it is still there but it is not hardly noticeable and also this is the one uh, difficulty the other difficulty is that we have no state of mind which is known to us to compare it so we don't know exactly where we're going quite uh, frequently people compare it to being on the edge of a precipice and afraid to jump into the precipice quite true a very good comparison because the precipice, we have no idea what it's like when we've jumped into it and into the valley. We don't know. And so it's a bit of a fear that The fear is, of course, produced by the ego that it's afraid it's going to be eliminated. You can reassure the ego that you have no such intention at this particular point in time because you haven't really got to that point yet. <laughs> Maybe that reassurance helps one to jump over the edge. The fourth one is uh, made much of in the Buddhist uh, descriptions, also in a manner of calling it the uh, jump-off point for the four immaterial jhanas sometimes he doesn't even mention them separately but quite often he does we will talk about them at another time they are also of great interest to us and of great importance and they are the eighth step on the noble eightfold path and they are the way the Buddha practiced it remains a source of wonder of wonderment to me why they have been in the past um, been hidden through silence. It doesn't mean that people haven't been doing them. Because the mind naturally veers in that direction. A meditative mind. A meditative mind wants to go in that direction. It's a natural progression. There is no Person that is thinking about such things who would not want to have peace. And where is peace? As I usually say, it's not on a piece of paper. It's in heart and mind. And naturally, the mind veers into that uh, stream where it eventually can attain utter peacefulness. That's what everybody is looking for, basically. Even though we sometimes call it different things, we might call it happiness, we might call it joy, we might call it uh, harmony, we might call it uh, equanimity, it doesn't matter what we call it, we all can use this different words, but it is that inner peacefulness. It's also interesting to note that every mind takes, the same steps. No matter how they are explained, no matter how they are written about, they are always the same steps. It is a natural progression for the mind. They can be considered our pathway to Nibbana. And if you look at them that way, you can't go wrong. Nibbana is a total change of consciousness the jhānas prepare that change of consciousness the depth and profundity of that complete change where the perspective is no longer one of personal being but one of universal being is so great that we have to gently and gradually change our consciousness towards this uh, goal. And that gradual change are the jhanas. They have been practiced in all religions Not just in Buddhism they are called different things by different names they are always recognizable by anyone who is doing them they have certainly been practiced and this may be of some interest by the Christian mystics of the Middle Ages whether anyone in Christianity is now practicing them, goes beyond my knowledge I don't have that much contact although I do have some but not that much but there certainly without the, any, any any doubt whatsoever written about by all the mystics whose writings are available particularly of the Middle, Middle Ages uh, certainly, practice in Sufism, it's called something entirely different again. In Christianity, also, of course, called entirely different things. Very often called prayer, different stages of prayer, all recognizable. Yes. Well, it's called different things, you see. In Christianity, it's called contemplation. But you, using different triggers. <coughs> coming to the same results mm-hmm. making totally different interpretations of it people like Saint Teresa Yes Yes John of
2: the
0: Cross, yeah, John of the Cross yes. um, Francis de Osuna yeah. uh, who is very little known and who was probably the best exponent of it so um, uh, they have different mm-hmm. triggers not necessarily watching the press and they certainly interpret differently but the results is exactly the same There was a Kamalite right mom on in Sri Lanka that you visited she was uh, living there for a Western
1: mom she was living there for 20 years already and we dropped into a month and That wasn't
0: in Sri Lanka mm-hmm. I visited Indonesia Carmelite nun in Indonesia. Yes. Yeah. She was Dutch. Yes. Yes. Dutch nun. Yes. I told you about it because she was <laughs> Dutch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's right. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely same thing. But called prayer. And different stages of prayer. So this, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about it for the reason of showing that the m- human mind has that at its... Um, Capacity, and when interested in the interior life and in the spiritual emancipation will go in that direction. Uh, it takes practice. It takes also some quiet surroundings as we have them here. However, when one becomes proficient at it you can do it anywhere. Anywhere at all. It doesn't matter. Now, the Buddha, there's a story of the Buddha, by the Buddha, um, of a time when he was meditating by a river. He sat down under a tree by a river. And uh, when he came out of meditation, there was a fellow uh, standing in front of him who was, in the essay, called him a wanderer of a different persuasion. In other words most likely um, a Hindu monk let's put it that way or a, a Brahmin ascetic right and he had apparently been watching the Buddha meditating and he said to the Buddha that he himself could meditate and had just recently done so during thunder and lightning and had not lost his concentration and the Buddha said oh very nice but um I've been sitting here at this river and been meditating, totally absorbed. And as I woke up, came out, not woke up, as I came out of the meditation, I realized that meanwhile, 500 ox carts had gone through this river and had been churning up the dirt. And if you've ever heard an ox cart, which are only possible in the east, you know that this, the noise is deafening. Absolutely deafening because they've got wooden wheels and wooden spokes and everything is wood and they crunch against each other. And not only that and the oxen bellow.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so 500 of those oxcarts crunching and bellowing went through that river while he was sitting at the edge of it meditating. And uh, so the other fellow was duly impressed I presume I don't remember what he (laughs) said Um, but they were telling each other at the time that when you're really absorbed the noise level does not matter anymore so we have to take that into consideration when we uh, watch our own uh, meditation so when there's real proficiency a real mastery the situation no longer matters But while learning it, the situation does matter very much. It is very important to be in a protected environment where there is um, some peacefulness and quiet and uh, um, support system and all that sort of thing. It's a very important thing. But later, as the Buddha was totally master of it, of course, apparently, no problem so as an in theory one could do it in the middle of Martin Place, but I don't know anyone who does I'll stop now with the jhanas, but i is there any question on that and I want to read you the end of this Sutta I love that end um, is there any questions on what we've been discussing yes
1: I'm seeing triggers trigger,
0: it's the different to the Christian but are the triggers there still essentially concentration of mind? It's still that's the, the result the trigger for the concentration in our case is supposed to watch the breath or maybe the colour casinos or loving kindness meditation whereas a Christian even today not just in the Middle Ages would use prayer uh, to Jesus or to one of the saints and um, try to become one with the uh, Christ consciousness this is their triggers well hopefully that would result from it the concentration they may be totally unconcentrated who knows I mean I know people who watch the breath and are totally unconcentrated don't you? <laughs> don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> so they may be inclined to become one with Christ consciousness and are totally unconcentrated
1: <laughs>
0: well if they become then concentrated they then have the kinds of experiences that we call the jhanas. They're exactly the same experiences. However, after they come out of them, they they've interpret them differently. Very easy. See, all you have to do is read, read the Christian mystics of the Middle Ages and you'll see. I mean, Teresa de Avila or somebody like that. You see, they interpret it as having... Uh, Teresa for instance course talks about having entered the chambers of uh, well, she has an anthropomorphic God actually. And um Jesus Jesus? Yes, it was Jesus. Having entered into the presence of Jesus. Uh having yes, he Jesus. Or uh, having I mean, we wouldn't say that the second jhana is having entered into the presence of Jesus. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't dream of it. <laughs> but that's her interpretation but it actually comes to exactly the same experience because she talks about the sweetness of it and uh, the beauty of it and she makes the descriptions which are far more poetic than any of the descriptions that I have ever given or ever will be able to give the great uh, poetry and... um, um, in, in, well, she wouldn't like to say imagination because she's actually experienced this but um, a great deal of uh, descriptive ability of beauty uh, uh, enters into it with her uh, her as an example Francis de Sunna isn't quite as elaborate in his explanations but there still every jhana is a step nearer to God does that answer your question or is there something else is that clear what they're doing Okay. it doesn't really matter the main thing is you do it <laughs> but I think it is an interesting fact and because we have uh, plenty of time here Uh, I thought I would mention it. I don't, you know, always uh, go into that kind of detail. But I find that an interesting fact, and it has been of great interest to me personally, because um, uh, I didn't know that, you know, before reading these things, that uh, the mind doesn't matter where it comes from, from what the tradition or from which uh, wish or desire, it goes along the same steps. In fact, um, um, Teresa Davila talks about the uh, mansion with the seven chambers. Now, the mansion with the seven chambers comes out of the Kabbalah, which is the Jewish mysticism tradition, which I also uh, uh, studied. Um, Studied sounds a bit grandiose. Um, uh, Let's say, try to study. It sounds a bit better. And she divides these up, these states of uh, elevated consciousness, into seven different ones. Whereas we divide them up into eight different ones. Sometimes they are divided up into nine different ones, even in in the Buddhist tradition. She says that six and seven are very indistinguishable, which... um, is not, in this case, we don't, we don't find that indistinguishable, but we sometimes find eight and nine very indistinguishable. I mean, there's very little difference. The way she describes them is all one and the same thing. And I've actually um, taken from her using the, the description of the mansion with the eight chambers. And I've said that many times, because to me that was an ex- excellent uh, symbolism Explain how the mind can go into these different states, and she uses the chambers as coming nearer to the one where God resides. And the God obviously resides in the seventh one, as far as she's concerned. Um, and seven are used in the Kabbalah, and we use eight. And that's a minor distinction. So I find this um, very. Um, or shall I say heartening that no matter which way you go you're always going to wind up the same place mm-hmm. <laughs> and it also shows I think that a religious life can only be uh, lived if one does allow the mind and trains the mind to go in that direction because this is where her li- religious experiences come from this is where her uh, religious teachings come from other than that she was extremely practical and pragmatic, and told her nuns to uh, 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 mop the floors and uh, you know cook the meals and um, behave nicely. but her li- religious experiences all came from that first states and they are also described in other as I said in Sufism, which is the uh, uh, mystical part of uh, Islam can find it there too again totally different words totally different aspects how much of this is happening today is uh, of course unknown Uh, as you mentioned quite rightly I did meet this nun in in Indonesia I made a point of going to see her that particular nunnery and this nun um, well I questioned her what she did all day (laughs) and she talked about her prayer stages and she had Six, but she had only got as far as number 4 and uh, she certainly looked like a jhana meditator <laughs> she was about 45 and she looked 25 and she'd been 20 years in the nunnery. but of course the jhana or meditative absorption is totally unknown to them you know, it's just a different language I find this uh, very heartening and... Uh, uh, a feeling of togetherness and uh, non-separation again. You know, very helpful in this non-separation aspect. And I
1: was you really helped by your, you know, uh, delineating, or didn't you?
0: Or I wasn't trying to help her. I was trying no, to. Actually, I was sort of like uh, questioning her to f- to get some information, and she was very happy to ex- express herself. Uh, they have um, uh, a closed order Um, what do you call it Uh, Mm -hmm. they don't have contact with the world closed it closed Mm it and uh, the uh, the the mother superior um, uh, you know sent her to talk to us through a grill and uh, I don't think she needed my help for anything she looked perfectly happy (laughs)
1: of both um, the
0: well, I mentioned I mentioned that we do the same thing, and that uh, you know we have these different states, but of course uh, that we do not uh, consider that Jesus or God. But I once very went very uh, uh, tenderly on that because I mean, I, you know, no know, used to upset a church, but none, you know. <laughs> <laughs> So um, I said, you know, told her that we do, and she was very happy about that. that we do also something similar, um, but you know, the uh, the Jesus and God idea and the Trinity is so ingrained that um, you you know, there's no way that that would not be their pathway. You know, of course, naturally, what we um, what in the Buddhist Buddhist tradition a big difference it's not that at all that's a total, totally the same the big difference is that we don't stop at the edge jhana, that this is our pathway to liberation whereas in Teresa's words it is absolutely sure there's no question in my mind that all these um, and the other Francis Gensuno also consider the presence of God in their concentration as the goal, and not the pathway. For us, this is the path. And the Buddha was the reformer in that respect, because in his time, it wasn't called Hinduism; it was called uh, Brahmanism. So the Brahminical religion, which was then uh, in India in his time, also thought that the Ajna was all there was, and that you became one with Asman when you came to the eighth one but the Buddha changed all that and uh, said no this these are wonderful states but you will still have Dukkha when you come out and if you still have Dukkha you still haven't done it and I want to find the way out of all Dukkha he said. and therefore he found that these, this is a pathway but you must find the way to realize the corelessness, the substancelessness of all phenomena which of course this helps you to do but it is a deliberate action of letting go this self-idea and this is what he taught that's where he was a reformer and that uh, reform of course as far as I understand, has not happened in Christianity. It is still exactly the same as it was. And uh, but one to which you should feel extremely happy about any of the nuns or monks in Christianity who are able to go along this pathway, because it takes them to a state of um, uh, consciousness which is, you know, elevated and transcendental. So, uh, from your
1: understanding and, and your reading and research. Would you say that these um, contemplating Christians identify the presence of God as uh,
0: when the mind becomes concentrated? Not initial concentration. When the, there are, they have exactly the same steps for their concentration as we have. Not first, second, third, fourth journal, but probably when you say in in, uh, in Teresa's case, maybe a seventh, eighth journal. That's when they are. That's when they are. Interpreting as the presence of God, because they don't feel themselves anymore. See, as I've been telling you, in the fourth and the eighth, the observer, which is the ego, is practically gone. Yeah, the presence of God to be in the presence of God, because they've given themselves up to order to give that self up to be in that presence. But it isn't it isn't done through insight it's done through concentration and therefore the insight the remaining um, step to be taken is not taken that insight step that you can actually give up the whole idea of self and give it up in a a manner of complete surrender now they are surrendering but during that time the Buddha is teaching to surrender completely Now, obviously, some of them may have surrendered completely. Who knows? I mean, I can't say.
1: Because, you know, in my understanding, the active kind of side of Christianity is trying
0: to get to that, like abandon oneself in order to Mm. serve. That's right. Mm. Yes, that is a a way, too. Not not my will shall be done, but thy will. Mm. Um, Now, but that doesn't work unless you do have those experiences. And it's quite possible, I would never like to negate the possibility that even without having any teaching in that direction, that when they have these experiences, whether then or now, and there is this giving up of the observer, (laughs) that this this surrender to the Godhead may become a permanent uh, condition. It isn't taught that way. The Buddha teaches it explicitly, but who knows, they may do it. It's quite possible. And they may wear a said, this is peaceful, so they may quite well do it, you know. But the, the Buddha's words are explicit, and that this is the only major religion where that is explicitly taught. The deliberate surrender, or deliberate uh, underst- it's not surrender in Buddhism the deliberate understanding of the illusion which needs then the giving up of that illusion when they say I will
1: to will my will,
2: that's almost the same thing isn't it I will to will
1: That's will
0: that's um, almost complete surrender yes well that is uh, intellectual surrender yes. now you've got to do it
2: yeah. that's the statement will
0: to thy will. well I don't know that statement from the Bible in the Bible the statement is not my will shall be done but thy will yes. that's a biblical statement I don't know what you, where your statement comes from so uh, certainly it's a determination but whether you can then do it depends a great deal on the practice and uh, as you see I mean as I've mentioned some of them do practice that way but the explicit explanation exists only here of what one needs to do
2: Yes Is it explicit in the Buddhist teaching that if one experiences the states of the jhanas, to then incorporate them in everyday life like joy for instance it is not dependent upon anything other than a in a self rising state. It just rises out of oneself spontaneously. Just try to cultivate that specific um draw in everyday
0: life that is independent of, of um physical or outside stimulus. That doesn't work quite that way. Um it works this way. The more insight there is which means the more letting go of the self delusion of the ego concept the more joyful the person is because there's nobody sitting in there trying to make one unhappy there's nothing happening however if it only concerns the jhanas there's a residue of the jhanas although the jhanas may be done morning and evening (coughs) during the day there's a residue of them the mind remains um, calmed and buoyant, because it doesn't um, concern itself to the same extent with the worldly matters as it has done before, because it's found something much better to concern itself with. That doesn't mean that one remains in jhana, which you couldn't deal with the world if you did.
2: Uh,
0: yeah. no, the, past, you the residue is there. The residue is there, because the mind is now habituated in those directions, and also because the mind knows that it can co- the, revert to those states at will. Is that what you were asking, or something else? Um, yeah, that's right. I,
2: mean. I was thinking earlier on that to to fully take advantage of with this kind of, or any meditation that specifically what we're doing here. It would seem useful to be one's specific nature but it one compressed uh, most of the, the waking hours in that, in that specific nature that is minimal outlay of energy and conflict. in order to practice with the most peaceful peace of mind.
0: Well, are you assuming that every person has one partic- particular, specific nature? Well,
2: it seems that, yeah, it seems that everything in creation
0: is to have and Okay, that. well, human beings, human beings are one specific creation. They all must have the same specific nature then. Mm. And the same specific nature for all human beings is that they're totally deluded. Yeah. <laughs> but that's
2: maybe not their nature.
0: Yes, that is their
2: nature.
0: It's their nature, it's not their delusion. Yes. The natural way of being is to be deluded. To get past that delusion is transcendental. Different karma is uniqueness, yes. But that again does not, would not affect one's specific nature. The specific nature of human beings is delusion. Uh, true nature of human beings is nothing but phenomena you can only rest in that through insight as I told you a moment ago the Buddha was the reformer he said that's very well to go through the eight jhanas but when you come out of them you're going to have dukkha again that's why it's not sufficient to have eight jhanas as the teachers in that time were trying to tell him. He went to two meditation teachers. They were trying to tell him that's it, that's enough. Because in the Brahminical tradition that was considered to be enough. And he said, no, when I come out I'm having dukkha again. I want to get past all dukkha. Therefore, only insight will prevent a situation in the mind without dukkha. And insight means a complete letting go of the delusion. But not through intellectual understanding, but through the actual happening and the actual then resultant feeling. That's the only way that one's intrinsic nature of delusion gets changed into one's true nature of being just nothing but phenomena. And then there's nothing to worry about. Nothing because there's nobody there to worry. To
2: to right
0: exactly. Exactly.
1: I so my comment would just start with faith. Faith, I suppose. Before effort is faith. Um,
0: Yes, uh, the word faith is suspect um, because it is uh, very often, you know, blind faith and that's why it's suspect in English as in the uh, Western tradition and we uh, like to use confidence rather than the word faith. Um, we get a bit of a connotation of mm-hmm. hey, do I have to believe something in order to get somewhere? Um, it's confidence. So actually it starts with Dukkha. This whole... Um, this whole um, um, pathway starts with the understanding of one's own dukkha and then with the uh, faith which arises from hearing the true Dhamma or the confidence which arises and then comes a worldly joy of having the opportunity to do something about one's dukkha and those three steps bring one to the meditative path, and that is the meditation then. So you're quite right, actually. But before that, faith, which I like to you know call confidence, um, the realization of dukkha. Because some people, they they quite rightly say, they hear the dhamma, and they say, oh that's all very nice, but you know I don't need it. I don't have any dukkha. Well, of course they do, but they don't know it, right? So we have to have enough understanding of our own dukkha in order to really see, aha, this is something. Well, I was just seeking um, this a little bit um, more clarity on what Stephen
1: was saying and my own question about... Um, I don't know whether it's, in our tradition, um, Buddha-nature, if that's more Mahayana, isn't
0: it, that expression? Yeah, but it doesn't matter. I think Buddha-nature, we think that's Zen, but we no, can use yeah, it. Yeah, yeah we, we can, can nature, use it. True cool.
1: nature, Christ-consciousness. Hmm. Now, all say all those expressions, um, from a Theravada point of view, um, would be referring to an experience of, of not-selfness. And... Isn't this what you were trying to say? If one
2: got to that true, that level, then it would be easier to
0: practice? Yeah, that sort of has the feel about what I
2: was feeling today. I just thought
0: if I could find my true nature, I could, I feel like it'd be a lot easier. Yes, but the true nature was enlightenment nature.
2: which needs right effort (laughs) (laughs) and Buddha
0: nature means enlightenment nature (laughs) you can't get away from it there's only two ways one is the relative reality in which we live in which everything is deluded and the absolute reality which comes from the letting go of that self-delusion and that's called Buddha nature whether it is also comparable to Christ consciousness, I can't say. I don't know. I don't know the expression well enough to know. But it means Buddha nature, yes. Of course, we all have it. So let's get going and find it. It's in there. It's just covered over with um, our inability to see it. That's all. So once you see it, no, then the practice of um, anything is of course easier because there's nobody obstructing it but at this point there is always I mean there are always just obstructions. because me has thoughts about these matters
1: <laughs> <laughs> hmm?
0: what's the fourth John when described, how is described, like? well in the in the uh, um, traditional way it's usually described as equanimity I like to describe it as a deep peacefulness you know equanimity is something that is um, although it is absolutely present it isn't as noticeable as a deep peacefulness I mean it's certainly present equanimity because they go hand in hand peacefulness and equanimity have to go hand in hand but the um, the peacefulness is more uh something that is' more easily more easily focused on but it's uh it's uh uh orthodox title of equanimity <laughs> I'll just read you the end of this um uh, so that we have finally actually finished with the Satipatthana Sutta. that one shouldn't think it would take so long now here also the inside paragraph again is the same as everything else except the very end of it independent as the others also no not, oh, that's the same as the others that's exactly the same as the others it wasn't, it's a bit funnily printed they don't always print everything independent not clinging to anything in the world yes it's exactly the same the conclusion because were anyone to develop these four foundations of mindfulness for seven years One of two fruits could be expected for him, either final knowledge here and now, or if there's a trace of clinging left, non-return. Well, final knowledge here and now means fully enlightened Arahant, and the uh, trace of clinging left of non-return is one step before full Arahant, as he calls the non-returner, and his situation is compared to the sent that clings to a flower, the aroma that clings to a flower, that much of ego delusions still clings to them. And also, the uh, we are the Buddha explains that we have ten fetters, and the non-returner has eliminated five of those. So you can see that even having taken such an enormous step as having explained nibbana three times and has become a non-returner. There are still half of the work still to be done to become enlightened. Non-returner, by the way, means non-return to the human level. A non-returner is a being that will be reborn in one of the Brahma states, which are the highest four consciousness levels, which as a vehicle have the jhanas, and so that it is usually expected that such a person even at death can be in vaginas which one doesn't necessarily have to know about because one can't uh, recognize it possibly and uh, in that state of uh, non-returning to human world but being reborn in Brahma world there does the last step of becoming Arahant the uh, fact that only five fetters are eliminated is, of course, a sign sh- how difficult it is to become fully enlightened, but not so difficult to enter into the stream, which is the rest of the stream Anyone with determination, concentration in meditation, and a certain... certain amount of already-established field thinking should be able to enter into the screen, particularly if there is a great deal of confidence in the politics. And I think we have already discussed the three set of that of following the political Do remember? I think we have discussed the So there is a trait of finger. now. Then the Buddha says, let alone seven years. Were anyone to develop these four foundations for six years, let alone six, for five, for four, for three, for two, for one year, for seven months, for six months, for five months, for four months, for three months, for two months, for one month, for half a month, let alone half a month. Were anyone to develop these four foundations of mindfulness for seven days, one of two fruits could be expected for him. These are final knowledge here now. Or, if there's a trace of thing non-return. Well, we've been here eight
1: years. What happens.
0: Share <laughs> this So what does he mean by developing these four conditions of mindfulness where to become our or non-returner? It means that one is mindful all day long. And that is, of course, an enormous endeavor. And that's why Okay, so the last paragraph, so it was in reference to this that it was said, because this path, namely the four foundations of mindfulness, is a path that he goes in one way only, to the purification of beings, to the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, to the disappearance of pain and grief, to the attainment of the true way, to the realization of nirvana. This is what the Blessed One said. The vehicles were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. What a pretty. The end is not on the face. No, no. I love this business of when, when the Buddha was, uh, said seven years, six years, five years, four years, I think it's great, isn't it? I've often uh, uh, mentioned this. So, you can see from this explanation of the uh, uh, mindfulness that we have an uh, enormous gamut of experiences which can come to us and uh, it might be useful to have a sort of um, uh, recap on that whole thing tomorrow and just recap the highlights
1: and uh, sort of a a consolidation off the point of the